Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Robert Hendershot on the show, and we'll be discussing his new book, Family Spats, Perception, Illusion, and Sentimentality in the Anglo-American Special Relationship, 1950-1976. It's a very interesting book in the sense that it takes the study of foreign policy out of the realm of rational action and into the realm of culture. One of the things that Hendershot shows is that the substrate of American-British foreign policy is really built on a kind of fellow feeling. He calls it a sentimentality. And this is the notion that somehow the fates of the British people and the American people are intertwined, both Um, historically uh, and, as I said, culturally. Uh, This is a very peculiar thing because it is really um, outside the bounds of what we would call rational action theory. Um, We are the people who like the British and the British are the people who like us. And what Hendershot uh, is remarkably successful at showing is that almost every instance in which um, American and British interests, subjective interests, collide on the world stage, and he gives two terrific examples. One is the Suez crisis, and the other is the Vietnam War, that politicians are forced to deal with this general notion that the Americans and the British are always fated to be together, even when their interests collide. Um, This is an important aspect of the political cultures of the respective nations. Um, To put it very bluntly, in order to get elected in the United States, you need to have the British on your side. And in order to be a successful British politician, you need to demonstrate that um, you are friendly, even very friendly with the Americans. Um, it's, a, it's a very odd thing, the uh, special relationship. I was uh, at pains to find any other examples in um, contemporary world politics of such special relationships. The only one I could come up with was the Serbians and the Russians. Um, and it is much more tenuous. But anyway, we should thank Robert for uh, writing this book. A lot of food for thought here. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to him, and I imagine you will enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Robert. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, you're in um, what I hope is sunny Michigan? We have sun. It's not very warm yet, but uh, the sky is blue, and it's starting to get a little bit warmer. I'll tell you quite honestly, I, I think some of the listeners know that I used to live in Michigan, and uh, uh, Iowa is a fine place, and I would encourage anybody to come here. Um, but there's one thing that Iowa um, does not have that Michigan has in spades, and that is that spring fruit you guys get. Yeah. It's astounding, yeah, especially the, the, living here. the cherries. I've never in my life ever encountered the, the abundance of cherries that I, uh, that I found in Michigan. It's a, it's a blessing. You guys don't know how lucky you are. Well, we uh, we really enjoy that every uh, spring. You know, there are cherry festivals. Uh, it's in, it's incredible. Yeah, we have an abundance of feed corn. 
<laughs> that's not quite well, as good as cherries. Too. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I should tell our listeners that we have um, Robert Hendershot on the show today who will be eating cherries later this spring. I will not be eating cherries. Well, I will, but they'll be expensive and from Michigan. And um, we will be talking about his book, um, Family Spats, Perception, Illusion, and Sentimentality in the Anglo-American Special Relationship, 1950 to 1976. I thought it was a terrific and brave book, but before I tell you why, in a long disquisition, I'm going to ask Robert to tell us a little bit about uh, himself, that is, where he grew up or was born, where he went to school, how he became interested in history, and that sort of thing. Go ahead, Robert. Okay. Uh, Well, I was born here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, here on the west side of the state, and I began my college career here at the the Grand Rapids Community College, which is where I am now a professor. That's great. That's a great story. Isn't that great? (laughs) I envy you that, too. Yeah, so it's nice to have a a permanent teaching position Mm -hmm. here in my hometown. That's very special. It is, yeah. But after I began there, I moved to... Michigan State University mm-hmm. for the, my, my, my bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. And there I started to take more specialized history courses in the Cold War and in post-war American history in general and in Great Britain. And the courses and the themes that I found most interesting related to this idea of the national identity. Mm-hmm. And it was there that I first read Linda Colley and, and, and uh, the book Britons, you know, Forging the Nation, and mm-hmm. just what types of historical forces lead people to identify in new ways. And I wanted to pursue that, and, and, and I've always been particularly interested in the 20th century, in particular, you know, World War II and after, you know, the post-war global community that emerges. And in studying things like the Suez Crisis and the Vietnam War, it came. It started to become more and more apparent to me just how significant this alliance between the United Kingdom and the United States actually was, and how their partnership impacts the world in developed nations and developing nations, mm-hmm. uh, communist nations, and, and, and just what a powerful force for change that was. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I would want to continue that in graduate work. Mm-hmm. And from there, uh, I started to look for just the right graduate program. And that's how I came to the joint program, the joint Ph.D. program between Central Michigan University and the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. These two institutions have a wonderful partnership. And people in that program, in the Master's and Ph.D. program, the joint program, pursue transnational history. Mm -hmm. And you spend time at both institutions. You spend time in Mount Pleasant, Michigan at Central Michigan University. Mm -hmm. You spend time in Glasgow at Strathclyde. Mm -hmm. And that program was just perfect for someone who wanted to study more about Anglo-American relations. It does sound like it would be perfect for your topic, yeah. Absolutely, it was. You have access to both faculties and and, and, uh, research institutions in both nations. That's terrific. So it couldn't have been better. Uh-huh. And so um, did you find splitting your time between these two places um, enriching or difficult? or? Well, I suppose every Ph.D. program presents its own challenges. <laughs> <laughs> you mildly said. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it worked out very, very well uh, to move around. You know, you do, you know, you spend years living in, in both countries. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a certain challenge to that, you know, and then it's a, a multicultural educational system. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, but you're immersed in, in, in uh, Scottish and British culture as well as in American culture, and it's wonderful to be able to travel around both countries and have yeah. access to all the various archives. Yeah, yeah. I, I confess I've never been to Scotland. I don't. Um, I, I imagine our Scottish listeners won't like hearing that, but I'd like to go to Scotland if anybody wants to invite me. I, uh, I'm, I'm available this summer. Um, anyway, let's uh, let's. Uh, um, so then, you, uh, this was your dissertation, this book, then. 
Yes, it was. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see. Uh, Go ahead. And uh, well, I mean, just it kind of extends out of my interest in the national identity and mm-hmm. Cold War yeah, culture I see. Okay. Uh, to pursue the Anglo-American special relationship. And, mm-hmm. and many things have been written about it already. You know, it's, it's uh, something that's been published widely about. Uh, but what I wanted to do was make a unique contribution. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people have, a lot of other historians, excellent historians, have alluded to the impact of emotion mm-hmm. and perception. Um, but th- what I wanted to do with mine was sort of to quantify that mm-hmm. and try to to measure it and try to show a direct impact, not just of strategic alliances and, and uh, you know, the economic partnership as the foundation for the alliance, but also these more nebulous qualities. Mm-hmm. And a lot of other historians, for example, have... have uh, you know, the seminal books in the field written by David Reynolds and, and D. Cameron Rott, Watt uh, had written books such as Britannia Overruled and Succeeding John Bull. And these are very important contributions to our understanding of the special relationship. And themes of these books, and just from the titles, Britannia Overruled, Succeeding John Bull, I mean, they, they mm-hmm. chart this post-war story where Britain is in decline and America is, is growing in its powers. Mm-hmm. And they established that dynamic, right? Britain's decline in America's uh, path to global supremacy is is the central axis of disagreement, mm-hmm. and as their divergence widens, as America becomes more powerful and Britain starts to look more to Europe for its future, those works suggest that the special relationship would likely not survive as the gap between a Britain and America continued to expand. Mm-hmm. And yet, what's interesting about the special relationship is that it appears to be indestructible, mm-hmm. and, and that even though. <laughs> It, it changes over time. It nevertheless survives, and it continues to, to impact global events. You know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, have certainly been more recent, more contemporary examples of the uh, the alliance. And I thought that that needed explanation. Mm-hmm. The standard explanation for the Anglo-American relationship was that they were they had strategic goals aligned, and they had economic interests in common, mm-hmm. and that was, was that was what really underpinned their alliance. Mm-hmm. And as those factors changed in the post-war world, the special relationship survived. Mm-hmm. And I tie that back to cultural affinity, and mm-hmm. more precisely, the, the perception of cultural affinity amongst foreign policy elites. Mm-hmm. Those number 10 Downing Street, right? those in Whitehall, those in Parliament, those in the White House, those in the U.S. Congress, those in the State Department, those in the militaries of both nations. The foreign policy elite perceived the American and British publics to have a friendship. Uh-huh. Uh, a cultural bond, and that perception of cultural affinity has been one of the most important factors in the special relationship history, and it's dynamic, and that had yet to be addressed in a monograph. Uh-huh. That's what I wanted to do. Well, I think, you know, uh, if I could just break in really quickly with my Absolutely. own comment and uh, also a, a compliment to you, I, I found the discussion of sentimentality, I think that's just the right word, in foreign policy. Uh, to be completely apt and uh, almost a little bit breathtaking in the sense that we, I think especially Americans, tend to think of things in um, rational um, terms, that is in terms of our own strategic or tactical interests, in terms of our own utility, that we wouldn't really ever do anything that involved a sacrifice on our part, and that we... You know, as I think it's the British who say we have permanent interests and not permanent allies. But your your study seems to demonstrate that's not true at all, um, because, because um, you know you you really do point out again and again um, that we have some sort of, uh, or at least the elite had some the the, the uh, uh, was convinced that we had some sort of special attachment to the British. I mean, and I'm reminded of nothing more than I studied Russia for many years of. 
the way Russians will sometimes talk about Serbians, of all people, Serbians. Um, now, Serbians speak a South Slavic language, which is mutually unintelligible with modern Russian. <laughs> um, uh, they, they are Orthodox, but they're not Russian Orthodox, really. Uh, so far as I can tell, having studied it for decades, there really isn't any close connection between Serbia and Russia. Um, but nonetheless, Serbians and Russians will, and still to this day, will talk about some sort of special relationship that they have. And it's, it's always been baffling, I think, to me, or to, I'm sure I'll be corrected by one of my listeners and many other Russian historians, but this seems like the relationship between Russia and Serbia on steroids. Because, <laughs> because even, even when the British do things which are really counter our interests, uh, we keep coming back. I, I mean, it's, it's really quite remarkable. Why don't we, um, by way of fleshing out the topic, uh, why don't we um, begin by um, talking about the kind of theoretical framework that you set up, and that is the perceptions of the elite on the one hand and the um, and demographic evidence of an affinity on the part of the populations themselves. You make a distinction between elite perceptions and um, popular realities. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, a big part of my book is this idea that there are actually two different special relationships, a special relationship on two levels, two distinct halves of this alliance, and one of them is the actual diplomatic special relationship, the cooperation, uh, the economic, the military cooperation mm -hmm. uh, in the United Nations, uh, cooperation in the field of nuclear weapons, that has existed as, as a particularly close diplomatic relationship since the Second World War, when they reached their highest level, their most intimate level of cooperation. And then it would continue after the Second World War, during the Cold War, and the confrontation with uh, the Soviet Union and international communism. And that relationship has always been fraught with disagreement. You know, the Americans and the British, even though they were cooperating, rarely, if ever, saw exactly eye-to-eye -eye on any particular issue. Mm -hmm. And yet, the other half of the special relationship, which I call, you know, the sentimental special relationship, the almost mythical nature of it, will sustain the, dip the diplomatic side. Mm -hmm. Even though they are constantly bickering, right, their perceptions of cultural affinity will underpin them. Okay, and that's the sentimental myth of the special relationship, right? That that World War II partnership and the myth of equally fruitful and, and uh, happy cooperation, smooth cooperation, agreement, consensus amongst the Americans and the British. That never really existed, but the perception of it and its ability to achieve victory, the, the wartime alliance memory, will do a lot to underpin the special relationship, even at time periods when the Americans and the British are, are working against each other's interests. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very interesting thing, this idea of the sentimental special relationship. And I, again, will break that into, into parts as well in my book. Part of that sentimentality derives from <clears throat> genuine cultural affinity. And that is the American and British public who favor one another in the various relationships mm -hmm. of the world. And you can measure this sometimes. Sometimes it's more nebulous. You know, how do the Americans feel about other peoples of the world? How do the British feel about other peoples of the world? And what I found, one of the great uh, benefits to my research, was the United States Information Agency, mm -hmm. which was a Cold War body that, you know, that the American government had, had established. And the idea of this conflict with the, uh, the communist nations of the world, the ideological com conflict, the American government want to measure how the peoples of the world felt about America and capitalism mm -hmm. and about the 
Soviets and communism. So there's a special government body created during the Cold War, the USIA, the Information Agency, that would directly measure what had previously you know, been immeasurable, which is how Americans felt about other peoples. And they take surveys, and they take elaborate surveys of how Americans and how other peoples around the world feel about America. Mm-hmm. And so I found this in, in, in Washington, D.C., at the National Archives there, actually in, in, in uh, the University of Maryland's uh, branch. And I have all of this wonderful data from the USIA mm-hmm. that shows over and over and over again that the other peoples of the world uh, reflect this idea of a special relationship. The Americans measured British opinions of America, and they show that the British, for example, tend to favor the American people, the American culture, and their nation's relationship with the United States more than any other people. A good comparison is, is, uh, is uh, made throughout the 1950s, 60s, into the 70s uh, between how the British felt about the United States, France, and West Germany. And consistently throughout that entire time period and after, the British favored the Americans and their relationship with America more so than with any other nation in the world. And, of course, Gallup polling data from the United States shows that the Americans felt similarly to the British. You know, of all the other relationships that the United States has, it has many close partnerships. Right? They would partner with France on many levels. They'd partner with Israel on many levels. Uh, they'd partner with Japan on many economic levels. And yet the American public would tend to favor the British. Right? If you ask the American public or the British public, who's your nation's best friend? An open-ended question. Overwhelmingly, the responses would show that the British felt that the Americans were their nation's closest ally and best friend, and that the um, <clears throat> the universe was true across the Atlantic. And so, that's fascinating, right? To have that data and to be able to chart that through periods of diplomatic tension, and it remains remarkably consistent even during the Suez Crisis, when the diplomatic bickering becomes so intense, the special relationship appears to almost entirely disappear at the height of the Suez Crisis following the, the British invasion of Egypt. The Americans saw, you know, the American government, right, the Eisenhower administration saw that as a, as a dangerous example of uh, latent British imperialism and that that would taint the Western alliance in this ideological conflict of the Cold War. That the Soviets were, of course, painting the Americans and their allies, the British, as is, um, super capitalistic exploitators of the world. And British, act, British actions in Egypt certainly seemed to, to indicate that that was true. And so the Americans had tried to dissuade the British from seizing the Suez Canal Zone, and they'd failed, and the British went ahead and did it anyway. And at that point, the special relationship appears to dissolve. The Americans uh, will cut off financial aid to Britain. Right? They're, they're not speaking to each other really in the United Nations. And, and uh, though they plead with one another uh, to support each other's position, it doesn't happen. And, and there is this divergence, and ultimately the Americans put great pressure on Britain, and they have to uh, cancel right, their, their attempted action in Egypt. And so the special relationship does nearly disappear there for a few moments in 1956. But right throughout that time period, the Americans continued to perceive the British as their best friend. The British people continued to see the United States as their closest ally in the world. And both governments would be forced to recognize that. And so even though they were constantly squallowing Right, the special relationship would reemerge. It's the elite perceptions of that cultural affinity right, that, that make the other in the special relationship their most important ally. They need that relationship because they're both democracies. If they don't maintain that, the public will not support foreign policy endeavors as much as they otherwise would. The Americans will learn the exact same lesson in the Vietnam War. 
right? But in, in reverse, right? The British are uh, sympathetic at the start of the Vietnam conflict, right, with the, Ameri- the increasing American involvement in the early in the mid 1960s, but the British are unable to send troops, and that is convinced of the Vietnam War's importance, right, to, to the global confrontation against communism. The British won't send soldiers. That's what the Americans really want. Because the American government wants, you know, to conjure those those images of, of uh, you know, Allied cooperation in World War II that led to ultimate victory, and the Kennedy administration, Lyndon Johnson's administration, will want to portray their actions in Vietnam as an international effort to support a friend, to support the Republic of South Vietnam. That's what they wanted to appear uh, to be, rather than just the United States propping up a puppet regime. They don't like that perception, of course. And yet, the British, you know, when I say they're sympathetic, right, they don't send soldiers. Lyndon Johnson will beg. And and he's not a man who will usually do that, but he uh, routinely, right, tries to seek British participation. And he'll say that a platoon of bagpipers would be sufficient. It's not the number of British soldiers, but rather just that they're there to have the American flag next to the British flag. Uh, in this period of great conflict. I mean, that for Lyndon Johnson would not be, you know, significant in a, in a military sense, but in terms of his domestic political reality, to have the British soldiers in Vietnam alongside American soldiers uh, would have been a dream come true for him. Or advisors in the United States government would say that a, Brit- a British brigade in Vietnam would be worth a billion dollars at the right moment. Just one brigade in terms of political and international capital. Um, but the British can't do it, right? They're in a period of decline, right? They're overextended as it is. Their empire is uh, rapidly disintegrating, and they can't send the soldiers. And that will, again, in the Vietnam War, just like Suez, it will create a period where the special relationship um, appears to be in jeopardy, and yet it will survive. And again, we can tie that back to cultural affinity, uh, measured by the United States Information Agency, measured by you know the Gallup Poll Organization, that even though their governments are squabbling, the people of both countries continue to see the other as their most important ally. And so even though they disagree, even though they can't support each other in, in, in uh, crucial foreign policy endeavors, they'll continue to talk about their special relationship. They'll continue to seek collaboration elsewhere. And that elite perception of American love for the British and the elite perception of, of uh, the British people's love for America will keep them united in this special sense throughout the Cold War period. Yeah, Robert, I was interested in knowing exactly the mechanism by which the popular um, sentimentality on the part of the British and the Americans, their fellow feeling for one another, um, impacted elites, that is, the uh, governmental elites in both Britain and the United States, and uh, how it affected foreign policy decisions. Was it through the ballot box or other mechanisms? Well, there's a variety of ways that uh, the cultural affinity is is observed and perceived by the elites. Uh, On one level, during the 1950s and the 1960s and 70s, you know, right up into the 80s, um, the foreign policy elite on both sides of the Atlantic is quite a homogeneous group. Mm -hmm. to be white, Mm -hmm. Anglo-Saxon, wealthy elites. And growing up in a, in a particular educational school, I mean, they, they are, are taught themselves, you know, to read Henry James, you know, Anglican. Uh, right? That's a significant part of their education. Mm-hmm. Well, they've been reared on both sides mm-hmm. uh, to perceive it. 
Uh, but then once they reach these elite positions of power, they continue to expect it, and they see it constantly. They see it in so many different ways, even when it's not really there. Uh, even when the British people are, 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 are sometimes protesting the nuclear collaboration between the United States and Britain. And mm -hmm. the British public is not necessarily protesting a special relationship, but rather this one aspect of its dynamic, where mm -hmm. the Americans are going to station nuclear submarines inside of Scotland mm -hmm. uh, in the Clyde uh, estuary. And, and they're, they're worried about the loss of sovereignty, and so the British will come out and protest uh, the Polaris base there in, in many different times of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And they're not protesting the idea of a special relationship, but they're protesting the, uh, the loss of it, mm -hmm. the relationship, the sentimental myth of it. It's supposed to be an equal partnership, mm -hmm. friends, and uh, positioning American nuclear weapons inside of Scotland that can launch independently without the consent of the British people. That is not the special relationship as it is ideally supposed to function. Mm -hmm. The Americans could then involve the British populace in a, in a nuclear conflict to, over which they had no input. Mm -hmm. And that's not the special relationship it was supposed to be, and so there will be protests, and yet the American public, the American elite, rather, will be able to just dismiss that as, as a minor anomaly. Mm -hmm. And in general, they'll see, they'll want to see, and so they will perceive the overarching story to be one of Anglo-American cultural affinity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They expect it, and so it's there. Mm -hmm. So what, was it the case then that, um, I'm trying to think just how to put this, uh, was it the case then that the expectation among the elite was that this cultural affinity between the two nations was a, a kind of permanent thing and therefore they had to work within its bounds in order to, let's say, have successful political careers? <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, I mean that. I mean, so there were certain things that were, were just not allowed. You could not say, for example, well, uh, we think the British are doing absolutely the wrong thing in um, not joining the European Union or in um, you know, not allowing us to... Uh, base missiles in Scotland, and therefore we're going to kind of break off relations with them. That, that's not allowed. Right. I mean, they would not uh, risk uh, uh, alienating a large section of their respective, you know, populaces, mm -hmm. or a large section, by openly bickering with the British. They'd try to minimize that as much as possible, even during the most intense periods of Anglo-American disagreement, the Suez Crisis, mm -hmm. the Vietnam War. They will try to coerce one another into getting what they want, mm -hmm. but they must do it within the framework of the sentimental myth. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, during the Vietnam War, um, Lyndon Johnson would, would invite the British Prime Minister to a, a conference at the White House, and that's always good for the British Prime Minister publicly for the, you know, in, in his own domestic political reality to show that he has influence over the Americans. Uh, that, that, uh, that's an important part, right? The, that there's the, that equality component. The PM was just here. Yes. Right. Yeah. Just last week. Yeah. And the amazing thing is, is that it, that the dynamic between the American presidents and the British prime ministers has remained remarkably consistent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, have the British prime minister over, try to coerce him, fail uh, to get a British you know commitment of, of soldiers to Vietnam, and yet still, right? They'd, it'd be Christmas time, and he'd have the British prime minister come out with him, stand next to him on the platform when they lit the White House Christmas tree for the first time, <laughs> and they pray together, yeah. this sense of Anglo-American solidarity, and say that the British, who have so much experience in the world, they're standing beside us in the United Nations, and and they're they're going to work with us to find peace in Vietnam. They try to make the most of it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even when they're in disagreement, they still have to work within the framework. They still have to you know sort of recognize 
that you know for, that they're that they're allying the special relationship is the most significant ally in the public's mind. Yeah, so the Americans it? never would. The Americans would never lose sight of that. I mean, the British are always the most effective ally for the American government to tout before their citizenry. Yeah, right, even if it's just bagpipers. Uh, the, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, but I mean, the thing, the thing that strikes me is that this is a kind of, uh, it's a kind of, it's a kind of expanded um, nationalism. And, and that is to say that it is a part of the American national identity to the British national identity that we have some sort of special affinity for each other. And, Absolutely. I mean, that, that is part of who we are. And if we don't have that anymore, we are not who we are. And since we cannot be something other than what we are, um, that's the bedrock assumption, then this will always exist. And we tell our politicians to work within that framework. Absolutely. And they still recognize it. For example, after the disaster of September 11th, uh, President Bush gave an address to the nation. And he, of course, had uh, Prime Minister Blair fly over for the occasion to uh-huh. be there. Yeah. He, uh, during the address, he had Prime Minister Blair stand up and be recognized. And President Bush said, thank you for coming, friend. Uh-huh. Yeah. And all of the other uh, allies and all the other nations of the world, only the British were there and only the British were recognized in that particular way. Uh-huh. And there's a political reason for that. Uh-huh. And likewise, uh, during the election year that just uh, concluded, uh, uh, Barack Obama did an international tour. He went to Europe and, of course, he went to Britain. And when he was there... He used the exact same rhetoric that uh, American leaders have been using uh, for generations mm-hmm. about the shared culture, the shared history, the shared values of the American and British people. Right. So, I mean, it seems to me extraordinarily interesting in contrast to the continental scene. I mean, it seems to me that in Britain or in the United States, cozying up with uh, the president or the prime minister, respectively, can actually get you elected. Whereas cozying up with the Americans, if you're German or French, <laughs> can get you defeated. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and that was one of the most uh, entertaining things to, to, to look at. I mean, it's very important to my thesis is to have a, a sense of comparison yeah. uh, about sentimentality towards other nations. Mm-hmm. And the Americans you know, understand that uh, you know, West Germany and France are, are allied nations as well, but they don't have the special place in American culture uh, that the British do in terms of the music and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones yeah. and TV and movies and, you know, James Bond and just all of this Anglo-American cultural connection that is just reinforced uh, in soft ways mm-hmm. is, is remarkably significant. Yeah. And they just, you know, no other nation enjoys that. During the American Bicentennial, Britain, of course, wanted to, to play a role in, in the 200th anniversary of the United States. And even though that relationship, you know, in 1776 had been characterized by hostility and, and terrible violence, 200 years later, the story that they wanted to tell, the interpretation of history, was still different. And it was one of cooperation, of partnership, of, of uh, you know, mutually intelligible feelings and emotions and value systems. The British sent the Magna Carta to the rotunda of the Capitol building. They had exhibits. Uh, they sent... Uh, a coal miners band from Britain to play for coal miners in the United States. Uh, the Queen would visit in a televised state dinner and waltz with Gerald Ford. Uh, <laughs> all these overwhelming examples of sentimentality and, and stoking it very deliberately. Likewise, you know, and, and then in, in, in um, comparison to that, France would feel obligated to make a contribution to the American bicentennial celebrations yeah. as well, and that was uh, what they called a, a sound and light show. I thought it was, I I can't remember what it was, but I thought it was like a cheese platter or something, wasn't it? No, it was a sound and light show, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there was a cheese platter there. Um, But it's a a sound and light show that they put on at Mount Verdon. The French stressed that it was really the French Navy that won the American Revolution. And and, uh, really would not 
please the American audience. Uh, right. And there was a tension to emerge over that. So even though the French and the Americans were the real allies in 1776, 200 years later, the perceptions of history and the emphasis that the, the various parties choose to put on it are actually quite different. Yeah. And again, that's because of the modern special relationship and, and the, the cultural affinity that both elites recognize. Well, it's, a terrific, it's an absolutely terrific example of how contemporary political um, considerations shape the uh, historical narrative that we want to tell ourselves. Because we, you know, Americans, all Americans would, would recognize the phrase, um, you know, remember Pearl Harbor. And some of them, those who are more historically adept, would, rem- would remember the phrase, remember the Maine. But nobody mm-hmm. remembers the White House. That is, when the British burnt it down, <laughs> you know, having invaded our country and stole Canada from us, which was rightfully ours. Um, no, I guess I shouldn't say those things. But the, <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, we just don't, we just don't think of it this way. I mean, we we forget the fact that they burnt down the White House. I, it's like, you know, we just don't. It's that's gone. No, no Amer- Americans don't know this anymore. Right. Ancient history. Ancient history, oh. done, absolutely. No question about it. Also, I was thinking in another way, you know, the kind of cruder aspects of national identity, the British get a break there, too. Um, because, you know, most Americans would uh, re- remember that Germans are somehow Huns and, and would certainly recognize them as Nazis. And then uh, the French, a recent phrase, had them as cheese-eating surrender monkeys. And there are even jokes, you know, about the French, like, um, you know, one is, a, you know, an advertisement for a, f- a French rifle, I think it is. Um, dropped once, never used. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't have these jokes about British people, do we? I can't right. think of any. I mean, I, I can't think of one. I mean, we've like rather uh, just the opposite. Yeah. You know, and and uh, you know, the British are, are tough, strong people, good allies who fought with us in World War One, World War Two. Yeah, uh, and are doing their duty right to help meet the communist threat, etc. And and there was all kinds of propaganda to to reinforce these perceptions. The American government would print it, would uh, create exhibits in Britain, right, to to tell the British people about. Of the American public and how similar they were, yeah. and, and uh, the U.S. State Department would uh, lobby Hollywood yeah. to crank out particular kinds of films. They were very concerned in the 1950s about uh, all the gangster films that were coming out and that happened to show Americans as, as luxurious, obsessed with wealth, and, 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 and frivolous people, and what they really wanted, uh, and what they told Hollywood to distribute in Britain was more films like Old Yeller. Old Yeller was one of my favorite films as a kid. I love that film. I really did. I'm and they kidding. wanted more films like Marty, where, where yeah. Ernest Borgnine is yeah. this, this hard-working American, yeah. uh, that, you know, this working-class American looking for love that they thought that the British public would identify with Randy more. Date, right? Yeah, Marty. Uh, so exactly. they, they deliberately try to stoke, uh, you know, that that perception of solidarity. Yeah. No, I mean, I find I find all this really fascinating because you kind of put it in the more objective framework, and you do. I mean, Britain is an important power in the world even today, uh, but they're not that important. You know, they're not like our number one trading partner. I don't even think they're in the top six. I mean, most Americans wouldn't be able to tell you what our number one trading partner is, and if I'm not incorrect, it's Canada. <laughs> mm. And yet, you know, how many Americans, if you interview them on the street, uh, would be able to, to you know, for example, if you do a survey of what, uh, you know, foreign heads of state they'd be able to name, uh, more Americans can name Gordon Brown than they can Stephen Harper. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And in, in the, uh, the newspapers and the, in the tabloids and, and, and things like that, uh, you still see the, the cultural connection with Britain. You see it in the television programs that hop across the Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, you know, programs like The Office. Programs yeah. like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and other, you know, British reality yeah. TV that has been picked up and become popular in America. 
it's and the number of American programs that play in Britain. Yeah, it's funny because even in my own lifetime, I mean, I'm, I'm a little older than you are. I can remember when the British left. That is the kind of people who were behind the New Left Review. This was during the Pershing Missile Crisis and that sort of thing when they were, um, you yeah. know, th- throwing their bodies down on Trafalgar Square to fight American nuclear imperialism. Um, it was it was plain it was plain at the time that the British public just wasn't buying it. That they just weren't. I mean, that, 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 that this attempt on the part of the British cultural elite to say that Americans were somehow bad, they just weren't buying it. There was just, it just wasn't happening. I mean, I had British friends at the time, and they just weren't, you know, they were whistling in the wind. Because it, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was just, it was assumed that we, we were friends. <laughs> and that was that. No matter what, what we did, we were still friends. And, and you, you point out these uh, pr- really quite remarkable sort of foreign policy. I mean, in the, the Suez crisis, I think, is the best example because... In the Suez crisis, they're trying to get us in trouble. And in Vietnam, we're trying to get them in trouble. And, right. in, and in neither case do we bite. And they, they, we, we, don't, we don't jump, and they don't jump. We're like, no, sorry, we're not, you're not going to dra- drag us into this. Um, now, we did drag other nations into it. I mean, the, the British drug the, the French and the Israelis into it. And we drug, uh, you know, for example, the South, many people forget this, but we drug the, uh, the, the, the South, South Koreans and the Australians, and I believe even Turks, or was that the Korean War? Um, yeah, we drug other nations into um, into Vietnam, but the British were like, no, not going to do that. Um, right. and, but right. still, the American government wanted above all was the British. Yeah. yeah, but but still, we have this notion that somehow is you know like this special you know. And then how do you? Uh, this is actually a little bit outside the the um, chronological bounds of the book, but I'd be interested to have you as an expert kind of speak on it because it's topical. A couple of things. One is um, this uh, weird American obsession with British royalty, and particularly Lady Di. Can you, is, is, how, how, does that, how does that fit into your, into your theory? I mean, it seems to fit very well, but go ahead. Well, I mean, in, in, in the, again, the foreign policy elite will comment on this whenever they meet with the British leadership. And, of course, when the, when the American presidents you know, make the visit uh, to Britain, they meet with the, the royals as well for the photo opportunity. Yeah. Um, and, and they know that that resonates with the American public. And, again, that, you know, that, that connection, why does the American public want to buy... Uh, you know, uh, pulp magazines with pictures <laughs> of the, the royal family on the cover. Why is that big business? And it, it goes back to the the, the interest and in, in the, the the perception of, of cultural of shared cultural heritage. That what is British is also in a way American. We've got the same, uh, in many ways, the same you know religious you know diversity in this country. We've got the similar language. We've got the shared history. Going all the way back, the Americans feel that that Britain and America can't really be separated. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I guess I I guess I, I understand exactly what you're saying, but um, there's some there was some. I almost want to be a conspiracy theorist here because there was a moment in American history, and it was a it was sometime in the later 19th century, I think, in which Anglo-Saxons were, I think, a reasonably small minority of Americans, and you know, like my people came from Germany. Uh, and, but somehow, um, we didn't feel a great affinity to the Germans. That somehow, and I don't know how exactly, but the British were able to mount a kind of, I don't know, uh, a, a sort of a publicistic campaign to convince Americans that they were, they were really, uh, they were really the sons and daughters of England. And, and it, it's it's sort of mysterious to me because most of us aren't. I mean. We just aren't. <laughs> exactly. And yet uh, there's that perception. Sort of a, a game where you, you choose your own ancestor. You choose what part of uh, you know, the national heritage that you want to emphasize. Right. And, uh, it makes me think of an interesting moment uh, during the, the, the early years of the United States where there was a movement to 
break away from Britain entirely, including culturally. Mm -hmm. And uh, Benjamin Franklin had proposed this in the, in, the, in the early Congress, that we should make German the official language of the United States of America. <laughs> Is that right? So, to, to finalize the break. And he made an eloquent argument, as Franklin always did, and it lost by one vote, this initiative. Really? It came very surprising. And it's interesting to think about if that had happened. And in 1914, 1915, what if the Americans had been reading, uh, you know, German propaganda through mm -hmm. the international press? I mm -hmm. mean, it would have been a very different history. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I exaggerate. I'm given the hyperbole in, in this kind of case. But, you know, the cultural connection and, and the shared language has built this common identity. Uh, you know, the publishing houses. Which works well for my book as well because yeah. it's distributed both in North America. Right, but even this, but even the shared language thing. You know, I watch British. I mean, there's certain. Uh, I watch a lot of foreign movies and I watch a lot of British and Scottish Irish movies, that kind of thing. UK movies. I watch them mm. with the subtitles on because I, I don't know what they're saying. I, <laughs> you think I'm kidding? But I watched one last night with the subtitles. On. I didn't know what they were saying. Oh, I, yeah, I couldn't figure stuff. it out. You know, I lived in Ireland for a year. I never. It's a fun, sort of funny story. I, I first got to Ireland and, and I took a. Um, I got in a taxi at the airport um, to go to town, and uh, the guy said, yeah, okay, I'll take you in. And he picks up the microphone, he starts to speak into the microphone, There, he's talking to somebody over the, the, um, the Citizens Band radio or the whatever dispatch radio he has. And I think, oh, isn't that interesting? He's speaking Gaelic. I didn't know many people spoke Gaelic in Ireland anymore. And then it kind of dawned on me that he wasn't speaking Gaelic at all. He was just speaking a sort of English that I couldn't figure out. <laughs> and that's the God's honest truth. I did not yeah. have any idea what the guy was saying. So, uh, you know, <laughs> so anyway, I mean, that is a kind of a weird myth too. Because they really don't talk like we do. I, you know, I, sure. I love them to death, but they don't, they don't talk like we do exactly. Um, it's a, and that's very peculiar. Let me, uh, let me, let me drag you back though to the second part of my question about the, the special relationship and the sentimentality today. And that is that there seems to have been a kind of a shift. Maybe it's since Thatcher. I don't know because now the British have sent troops to both. Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, how do you explain that? Well, I mean, it, it goes back to the lessons of both Suez and Vietnam. I, in my book, I treat these two episodes as, as the, the, the foundation for the modern special relationship. And after the Suez crisis, the overwhelming lesson for the British is that for their foreign policy to be effective, they need American cooperation. Mm -hmm. And in Vietnam, right, the Americans learned something similar, right, to maintain a good American public opinion in uh, support for a foreign policy adventure, including a, a violent one such as war, they need the British on their side. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, throughout the rest of the Cold War, they're, they're going to maintain these. And then even in the post-Cold War era, both those lessons still apply. Mm -hmm. And in the war against terrorism, right, they're, they're, their objectives have aligned somewhat. But still, the British are thinking that they still need the Americans. Mm-hmm. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, a lot of British people, you know, would, would uh, criticize that, but the government still perceives uh, that the alliance, that, that to have a, a careful alliance with the Americans is important to electoral success. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw that again, you know, in, in the recent round of elections. You know, they want to show that Britain is still strong, and the ideal goal is for, for the British government is to show that they have influence over the Americans. Mm -hmm. They have to be able to show that in order to, to, to win votes. Mm -hmm. And... The lesson from Vietnam is, is is that you have to contribute in order to have a voice with the Americans. Mm -hmm. If you don't play a role, you don't get a seat at the American table. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that's what the Blair uh, government was thinking when they decided to enter into this adventure. 
that it, to have any influence globally, right, to have influence with the Americans, that is, they would have to take a share. They'd have to play a role. Mm -hmm. And that would give Britain a larger voice than nations that didn't play a role. And that is astute. I mean, that, that it has worked out that way. I mean, Britain has always contributed the made the largest contribution uh, other than the Americans to the war in Iraq, and they're still there. They're there for another couple of months. And of the other nations of the world, I mean, Britain is, is uh, and you could make the argument whether they have a significant impact on American foreign policy or not. Um, but to even make the argument to the British public that they have any influence at all with their American partner, which speaks to the sentimental nature as it should be, and I mean, they should have influence. Mm -hmm. They're going to play a role in the foreign policy endeavor. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I see what you're saying, and I, and I like you, I'm given to hyperbole in this uh, in this, in this sort of uh, regard, because it seems to me that uh, actually the British have been incredibly clever in um, in, in making in making their their own place in the world or the, or their own foreign policy sort of uh, the the trigger for American foreign policy. That is, just as you said, I'm not being very eloquent here, uh, but the in order for uh, the American president to go forward with some foreign adventure, especially a military one, he almost has to have the support of the British and the material support of the British. So in that sense, the British are determining or limiting the. Uh, the foreign policy of the sole superpower in the world. Am I wrong in thinking that? I, I think that you're, you're correct in asserting that that is the perception to this day amongst the American foreign policy elite. Yeah. And I think that that is based upon this underlying sense of cultural affinity that, that people recognize. And again, intermittently, it's difficult to measure uh, or quantify American affinity for the British people at a, at a, at a broad public level. Yeah, so... Uh, it's perceived. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So, is is it the case that you know, for example, we talk about not that this is going to happen, and God grant that it doesn't. You know, when we talk about invading Iran, I mean, are we first going to Whitehall and trying to figure out what the British will do? And if the British say yes, then we say yes. I don't know. What to say. <laughs> I think that that would that, that, that just you know, America has reached a, a place now where it is the most preeminent power in the West. Yeah. And they could, you know, the United States government could decide to do that unilaterally. Yeah. You know, we've seen that attitude uh, amongst the American foreign policy elite uh -huh. recently. Yeah, let me... Let me let uh, so, so British participation is not the crucial factor, but it would certainly be a great benefit. Yeah. It would be seen as... Is, it, it would grease the wheels of that international policy decision. Well, why if would you have you? the support of the British, all things are easier. Yeah, why, why would you say it isn't the crucial factor? Because, I mean, if we just look at the historical examples... Um, it seems to me that, uh, with the exception of the invasion of Granada, which I think we did alone, <laughs> um, I don't remember whether we had the uh, the poles on our side as we do in Iraq. Uh, the invasion of Granada that that we haven't really done. The first Iraq war we had the British. Second Iraq war we had the British. The Afghan war we had the British, and we, we've not really embarked on any kind of foreign military operations overseas, major foreign without the British. Exactly. I don't know if they stopped us, but uh, they, you know they certainly are always there. Yeah, and and they're there because of the political value. Yeah, and, and right. not to not to underestimate the, the the sacrifice made by British servicemen or whatever. Oh no, not at all. Not at the, all. The, uh, the, the the political value of British partnership uh -huh. is, is uh, the real significance there for both parties. Uh -huh. And and uh, I mean that's really the driving force behind that. I mean, yeah. the, the influence with the Americans is is uh, seen as a necessity. The British, you know, still retain a, a global perspective despite their their uh, you know commitment to the European Union. They still 
you know, it's a sense of the modern British national identity that they're more than just a European power, I think. Uh-huh. I think uh-huh. that many people in that country still perceive, you know, uh, that, that, that Britain has global influence. And so it does, you know, through yeah. the, in, in, in through global trade. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I mean, I find that, you know, uh, would it be the case, let me ask you another ridiculous hypothetical, uh, would, would it be the case that, say, the Germans all of a sudden decided that they really wanted to pitch in and... We're going to send a division to Iraq or, or Afghanistan. Would we start to feel better about them? I think that it would be appreciated by the U.S. government, but I don't think it would have the political value that British contributions do. Yeah, and and right. as throughout history, I mean, you know, the, in the, for example, in the Vietnam War, the intense lobbying that the Americans did to get the British uh, to commit soldiers. Yeah, you tried that with Germany somewhat, but not as much. I mean, with the British, that that pressure from America was general and intense. And the most that the British were ever able to do was send a, uh, an advisory group of policemen, uh, British police officers, yeah. South Vietnamese police officers. Yeah. And that was a wonderful thing uh, for the Americans. They were so excited to get that, uh, and they really made the most of it. They, they tried to emphasize that in all the international press, that the British were sending policemen. It would have been better if they were soldiers. Yeah. Um, but uh, they, were, they were thrilled to have that. Yeah. And, and uh, again, the pressure to get the British commitment was... was uh, General and intense. Yeah, no, I, that, that's so. Yeah, I mean, I think what what the special relationship is for um, kind of upwardly mobile British and American politicians is a sort of force multiplier, as they say in the military. That is, if you're going to do something and you can get the other side on board, well, then it has a kind of exaggerated effect. Because as you say, and as Johnson knew during Vietnam, all he needed was nominal support. If the bagpipers come, then he gets all of the benefit of a division. And the British don't have to risk the division to do that. Absolutely. And the, and the constant data being created by the United States Information Agency, you know, in the Gallup polls, and right, showing that there is this quantifiable cultural affinity and preference for a partnership with the British and British preference for partnership with the Americans. Mm-hmm. I and mean, he understood in, in, a, in a very, you know, statistically quantifiable way that that had political capital. Yeah. That was no, good. Right. And he was watching his own uh, popularity erode. Over the course of, of uh, you know his administration's yeah. you know, escalation in Vietnam, and so it became increasingly important time to get the British, yeah. and yet the British were unable to to make the commitment. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's I think that's exactly right. It's it's, it's extraordinarily interesting though to see um, how important the cultural moment is in diplomatic relations, uh, because again, and I'll come back to what I said at the beginning of the interview. We ordinarily think about these things in terms of rational self-interest. But it's clearly the case here that we're dealing with an idea, that is, that there's some special affinity between Britons and Americans uh, that will not go away, come hell or high water. Am, am I wrong about that? Absolutely not. Uh, and, and uh, you know, many, you know, foreign policy, you know, monographs will, will focus on, on, you know, military cooperation, economic cooperation, work in the United Nations, Technological uh, cooperation with nuclear weapons and, and, and uh, you know missile systems and things like that, and that is important. But it's also important to recognize that there's more to international diplomacy than strategic and economic convergence. Yeah, there is culture, and culture plays a powerful role in what alliance systems are formed, and which ones have the most power, which ones have the most longevity, which ones are the most durable. Mm-hmm. And the special relationship is, I think, the the archetypal example of that, right, where culture plays a powerful role. And it's not always at the forefront of their discussions, 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah, let me, always there. Let, let me ask you this question. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the special relationship reminded me a little bit of the way that Russians uh, think about Serbians and Serbians think about Russians, um, and that there's a certain mythology involved there. But nonetheless, it's a powerful cultural fact and a determinant of both Serbian and uh, Russian foreign policy. Can you think of any other instances of special relationships like this around the world? I know I've kind of put you on the spot, and if you can't, you can't, but I just was interested mm-hmm. to know if you if you knew of any others. Other special relationships. I can't, I can't think of any, really, I, uh, uh, to be it's honest that, with you. That function on the cultural level. Yeah, a little bit like the American-British, yeah. Uh-huh. Not really. I mean, you know, the United States claims to have special relationships with you know whomever it's convenient to claim that with at the time. Right. For example, I mean, there's often you know uh, diplomatic discussion of America's special relationship with Israel. Uh-huh. And in a strategic sense, in a military sense, that relationship is special. Uh-huh. But in a cultural way, not as much. Yeah. Likewise, you know, the people have discussed a special relationship between the United States and, and uh, Japan in the post-war world. Uh-huh. And that's an economic special relationship. Yeah. Uh, and a strategic value in America's presence in Asia. But on a cultural level, it's not the same as the one with Britain. Yeah. Britain, you know, the, the, the Anglo-American relationship is truly special in its cultural dynamic, mm-hmm. which is why I wanted to focus uh, my, my work on that particular field. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's very... I, I can't think of any other examples around the world of places that have that kind of affinity. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose there was a moment in pan-Arabism in the 1950s and 60s in which one might have said that some of the Arab-speaking kingdoms of the Levant had this kind of special relationship, but then um, after the Camp David peace accords, that seemed to to break up very quickly, um, and Egypt went its own way. Uh, You know, Spain and Portugal, I don't think so, and, um, you know, North and South Italy, but (laughs) they're one country. Um, So I can't, you know, again, the the, the Serbian-Russian case does does sort of, I'm sure some listener will... um, write me and, and correct me or us that, and say that, yes, there, there are these other kinds of special relationships. But I think the French talk a lot about a special relationship between France and the Francophone world. Uh, but I think the Algerian crisis put the lie to that. Um, and yeah, I'm yeah. of America's relationship with Ireland. Um, you know, and I don't really address you know America's relationship with Ireland specifically in Family Spats for the for the reason that that isn't a whole other book yeah. that I would like to write. Um, but you know, there is a special relationship culturally between the United States and and uh, the Irish you know island, uh-huh. uh, and there's a sense of identity there. I mean, you know, many Americans. I think it's one quarter of, of uh, uh, Caucasian Americans can claim some aspect of Irish ancestry, uh-huh. and you know, the Irish American identity is very prevalent, and uh-huh. a cultural with Ireland is widely perceived. But in many ways, it's not as significant diplomatically and not as significant around the world as the Anglo-American relationship. Uh-huh. Because perception of Anglo-American cultural affinity and identity is so strong, and because of the, the, the power and the alliance of those two nations, the Anglo-American special relationship and cultural affinity has allowed those two governments to drop bombs on populations around the world together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... and uh, in that way, it has often contributed to war and violence and peace mm-hmm. in a way that the Irish-American relationship has not had an impact globally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm just kind of thinking that all of this, you just, your book brings to mind the notion that all of this is kind of a logical extension of the growth of nationalism in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, you know, it was the case that northern Germans and southern Germans did have special relations prior to the existence of a unified Germany. And it was the case that 
as I say, northern Italians and southern Italians and all the different Italians had special relationships before Italy became a nation state. Um, Great Britain and the United States never became a nation state, but they are, in a certain sense, a nation. Um, I know that I will get people who will yell at me about saying that. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the idea of Britain as the 51st state, yeah, 51st state. Or, Earth day, or, or, you know, as it was treated so often in, in uh, you know, arguments between the, 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 the military branches of Britain and America, the, treating Britain as the unthinkable aircraft carrier right, of exactly. the United States, um, that they are very uh, close together and that yeah. they are perhaps going to continue to meld together. I mean, uh-huh. that's, a, that's a topic of great controversy uh-huh. because part of the special relationship is the fact that they're both equal partners, right, that they yeah. uh, can speak to each other, you know, in, the, in true friendship and in, in, in complete honesty because they respect each other's strength uh-huh. and uh, their, their, their national independence. Perhaps a, a, How much is that a myth and then how much is that uh, a reality? That's a good question. What I would argue was that the idea of, you know, Equal mutual cooperation becomes a myth, uh-huh. and it's still a significant myth. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, the American, you know, political and economic power, diplomatic power, supersedes that of Britain. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I was thinking though, uh, just again, more hypotheticals, hypotheticals and hypotheticals. Uh, maybe it's the case that after the Communist Party falls in China, and that um, the Chinese government democratizes, which I anticipate that it will, because they all do, um, then there'll be a special relationship between China and Taiwan. Ha! That's an idea, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, indeed. And that would be an interesting future. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it'll happen. To be quite honest with you, I want to um, I want to ask about one thing, and then and then and then um, because uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, and then I want to ask our um, final question, Robert. Uh, the one thing I want to ask about before I ask you what your next project is is that I'm going to confess my ignorance about something, and I'm also going to make the further assumption that my ignorance is shared by my. Um, very erudite and well-educated listeners, and that is this thing called the Malayan Emergency. I, I didn't know anything about this. Um, can you say a few words about it? And I, I mean, I, I think it's called the Malayan Emergency, and this was the British fighting uh, the uh, Malayan Communist Party uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Or maybe yes. it was just I, I didn't know anything about this, but apparently the British were very heavily involved. Yes, they were, uh, and uh, they would, were able to subdue the, the, the communist, uh, you know, insurgency in, in Malaysia, and they had to contribute many soldiers, right, to, to, to you know, quote, keep the peace. They had 50,000 at one time. Am I wrong about yeah. that? It's a lot. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's a lot for the British at this time yeah. when their empires, you know, they, they spent so much blood and treasure in, in the Second World War that, you know, in the post-war area, their global empire and their their ability to maintain commitments around the world is in rapid decline. Uh-huh. Yet, uh, because of their partnership with the Americans, because they still want to make a, a contribution in the Cold War, they feel compelled to help confront communism uh, in, in, in the Malaysian emergency. Uh-huh. And while the Americans are screaming for British support in Vietnam, one reason why the British can't do it is because they're still uh, committed elsewhere, and they're mm-hmm. confronting communism there. Mm-hmm. And they'll try to make the most of that with the Americans by, mm-hmm. by uh, highlighting that during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And that's actually where uh, Sir Robert Thompson comes from, right? He's the one who will lead the police mission in mm-hmm. Vietnam. Yeah, that's interesting. He's selected, he's selected for that mission because of his experience elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Um, and again, he's chosen to highlight you know, the British commitment and the, the fact that just because they're not in Vietnam doesn't mean that they're not stalwart and equal allies yeah. in the Americans. 
Yeah. Has 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 the history of the Malian emergency been written? It's been you know written about in a few articles. Someone should you know uh, write another monograph about it. And, uh, and, uh, and that brings me right to what you're going to do next, because I suggest that you do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll have you back on the show, because I would love to learn more about this. And I, you know, I think I've read everything there is to read about the Vietnam War, but I had never, I, you know, I, I just had never encountered this, um, this sort of British Vietnam. Uh, although they seem to have done better <laughs> than we did, <laughs> a lot better. So in any event, okay, so let me ask you now that I've um, pitched you the Malaysian um, or Malayan emergency. Uh, what, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I've got several things in the works now. I've got, you know, like all historians, I've got dreams of projects that I'll pursue now that this book is in print. Uh And I'd like to continue my work on the special relationship Uh uh, on the impact of Ireland. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of in the middle of of, uh, Britain and America and how the Irish identities have impacted uh, the alliance. And Mm -hmm. I'd like to pick up right where I left off with the Family Spats book. Mm -hmm. I'd like to pick up in the 1970s uh, with the rise of the Troubles in Northern Ireland and how the troubles there have impacted the special relationship and how you know the Americans were able to uh, you know have influence over uh, the the Irish Catholics treatment in in uh, Ulster. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, an extension of that. I'm also interested in continuing my 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 uh, work on the rise of culture the role of culture in diplomacy. Yeah. In a more sweeping book uh, in the future I'd like to look at how culture impacts the relationship more broadly between the United States and the European Union. Yeah. Sort of building on Samuel Huntington's work, right? Mm-hmm. The the West versus the rest, mm-hmm. and the power of culture, right? Mm-hmm. To keep the Western alliance is a is a discernible, you know, political identity, a cultural identity, in the the, the, the axis of conflict in the next hundred years. Yeah, I, th- I think that's I, th- I think that you're um, mining a very rich vein there because it really is to most Americans, I would say, and most well, maybe not most foreign policy experts, but uh, a somewhat counterintuitive thesis that. Uh, there is something a little bit irrational about the way we go about our foreign policy. And I don't mean irrational in the negative sense, but there's something kind of preconscious about our loyalties concerning um, other types of folk. And, and I just find that unpacking that and analyzing that and trying to get at it, especially with the good um, polling data that you have, really a very, very, um, it's, it's really a very original thing. I say it's, I have not read this literature, and I, I could just be talking out of my hat, but it seems to me extraordinarily original. I had never considered it, but uh, I, I think thank it's you. I think it's it's absolutely terrific. So, anyway, Robert, thank you very much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Let me tell our listeners that we're talking to Robert Hendershot about his book Family Spats: Perception, Illusion, and Sentimentality in the Anglo-American Special Relationship, 1950 to 1976, where you can read a passage about Gerald Ford dancing with the Queen. That's a great passage. You remember that passage? You know that passage. It's really very. It was poignant almost because he apparently was quite a good dancer. Yeah, he yeah. was, and he had the the politically disadvantageous uh, reputation of being a bumbler. Right, exactly. But he wasn't at all. He was a great. He was the. He was. I, I think Gerald Ford gets a bum rap because he was the most athletic of American presidents. I mean, the guy played football in Michigan. Absolutely. He was a serious, the, the yeah. waltz elegantly waltz with the British monarch. Uh, would help him politically in, on more than one level. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, anyway, Robert, thank you very much for being on this show. I enjoyed our conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Robert Hendershot about his new book, Family Spats, Perception, Illusion, and Sentimentality in the Anglo-American Special Relationship, 1950-1976. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Music.